How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. Welcome to Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton. Japan's nuclear crisis comes a year after President Obama called for a revival of atomic energy in America. Yet no new reactor has been completed for decades. A handful are at various stages of planning or construction. Will they get built? How do new doubts about splitting atoms affect the prospects for running our economy on coal, solar, and wind power? What are the prospects for major energy legislation coming out of Congress? Today, we'll discuss America's energy future with our live audience in San Francisco and Jim Rogers, chairman and CEO of Duke Energy. If and when a pending merger with another utility is completed next year, Duke is poised to become the country's largest electric company with $23 billion in revenues and 7 million customers from Ohio through the Carolinas and Florida. Please welcome Jim Rogers to Climate One. Thank you for coming. Greg, I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for including me. And thank you for stopping. Uh, I know you're on your way back from China. I don't know what time it is for you, but thank you for being here, whatever time it is on your on your clock. Uh, but let's begin in, in Asia. I mean, obviously, the Japan situation is on many people's minds, particularly here in the western United States. How is that going to affect the nuclear program in the United States? Well, first of all, the whole Japanese earthquake and tsunami is a tragedy. Uh, for the people of Japan. Um, but let's just focus, with that as a backdrop, let's focus specifically on what happened. And an uh, important point to make is, is we're getting facts in every day as to what happened to those reactors. Mm-hmm. Embedded deep in the culture of the nuclear industry in the United States is both safety and continuous learning. We're going to learn a number of things as a consequence of studying what happened in Japan. And I think at the end of the day, we will incorporate those learnings and how we operate nuclear in the U.S. Important statistic. In the U.S. today, we have 104 reactors, twice as much electricity generated from nuclear than from um, than any other country in the world. We have operated these reactors in a complex um, but effective regulatory regime with the Nuclear Regulatory Commission as well as IMPO, which is a self-regulating organization. Mm -hmm. And the combination of those two have produced these results. We have had no fatalities, no leakage of radiation over the 40 years. And the important thing is, is that kind of goes to the safety it goes to the reliability of these units. With respect to Japan, we will pause, we will learn, and that will make us stronger and better in the future. With respect to building new nuclear, I'd make two observations that I think are very important to make. One is there is a nuclear renaissance going on in the world, but not in the U.S. There are 61 reactors being built around the country, I mean around the world, and my bet is, although China said they're going to slow down and take a look, but they're building 24 reactors. Um, they're building them in India. They're building in Abu Dhabi. Uh, they're, so my belief is that there'll be no slowdown in the building of those reactors around the world. In the U.S., I believe we will continue to move forward with nuclear after we've done our research and made the necessary type of actions that are required as a consequence of what we learned from Japan. But as President Obama said, he believes nuclear is safe. Um, The Secretary of the Department of Energy, Secretary Stephen Chu, basically says he believes that nuclear is safe, and I agree with that. And I would make one last point. Seventy percent of our carbon-free electricity in the United States comes from nuclear. And that has to be an important part of the way forward. If you're serious about 
climate legislation, you have to be serious about nuclear because of the role it plays in providing zero greenhouse gases 24 by 7. I think one of the striking things about Japan is that the last nuclear uh, accident disaster that people can remember was Chernobyl, where it was a kind of outdated Soviet-era uh, reactor. This is Japan, right? They're supposed to do their world standard. I think that's part of what caught people by surprise, and also that a lot of the assumptions they had about the, the height of the levees, the backup systems, they had the generators in the basement, proved to be pretty silly now that we're looking back at them. So how do you think it's going to change some of the operating assumptions of U.S. reactors that are near quake lines here in California, near the ocean because they need the water? Uh, Do we build them in the wrong place, perhaps? (laughs) I think think a series of things have happened, and that's a legitimate set of questions. One is, and the NRC has already signaled, we'll look at the seismic uh, situation with respect to uh, nuclear units across the country. And in fact, one of our units, the Oconee unit in the upstate Carolina, South Carolina, is one of those that will be examined with respect to seismic. The other issue... Is, is it near a fault? Is that... Well, it has a it's not near a fault, but it has the potential with the geography, I mean, with this situation there to have that potential. Okay. It's a little different than in California in, in terms of being on the fault. Um, but with, out of an abundance of caution, they're going to look at the Oconee plant. I also believe that we'll rethink what we do with spent fuel in the, in the pools. Mm-hmm. I think we'll accelerate the movement of the spent fuel out of the pools into cask, into concrete cask. Mm-hmm. We already do that today, but I believe a consequence of that will be that. The other thing is there will be a closer look at auxiliary power. What happens if you have power knocked out by a tornado? What happens if you have um, your auxiliary unit goes off? But I will tell you this. After 9-11, we basically took a look at all that and have been able to develop protocols to basically, if we have the power knocked out, to take the station to what I call black station status which shuts it down and and protects the reactor as well as protects the spent fuel in the pools. So, again, I think we'll have to make more investments, maybe modify some practices, do some more operating uh, operator training. But I think what th- we're going to find is, is that we're very prepared for these kind of black swan incidences. Mm-hmm. Some companies, Germany, uh, for example, is taking a real hard look, and they may decommission or certainly build no more new nuclear plants. So do you think there'll be some countries that, that t- either, if don't take their foot off the gas, that just sort of really change direction as a result of Japan? Germany that you mentioned is a really unique situation. The government, prior to Merkel, basically had made an agreement with the Green Party to shut down all their nuclear plants by 2020. She had put on the table the proposition in her coalition of basically extending the life of those nuclear plants and not shutting them down. Because of the politics of Germany, what happened is she quickly changed her position after Japan, but nonetheless lost a critical election primarily because the Green Party candidates stepped up and won the election. So that has totally changed the dynamics in Germany. But this is about renegotiating an agreement that had been entered into before. Extending the life of plants is also an issue in California. I mean, we have some plants here that are due, their licenses are due for extension in under 10 years. Do you think that 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 should happen, that regulators will take a harder look now at, at extending the life of reactors? Because we know the ones in Japan were, what, 40 years old, and presumably the new ones are safer? Well, virtually all our plants, and, and we're the third largest generator of electricity from nuclear, all our plants, we've already got permission to extend the life to 60 years, uh, from 40 to 60. Um, I think it's... The NRC looks at this on a plant-by-plant basis, and I think the scrutiny will be even greater in terms of extending the lives on the plants 
where they hadn't already extended the life of the plant. Now, you have a, a new plant. I believe it's the next nuclear plant uh, next in the queue to be built in the United States, the first one in decades, and that's an $11 billion plant. Uh, do you think the cost will be impacted by Japan, either in terms of delay or additional regulatory requirements, or your funders saying, we're going to charge you a little more because the risk is different now? I th- <laughs> Good set of questions. I think first... Um, Remember, we have not built a new nuclear plant in this country since Three Mile Island. And secondly, we're in the first wave of plants to be built. We're going to be using the Westinghouse AP1000 unit, which is fundamentally designed differently than the ones in, in Japan. Which were built by General Electric. Which were built by General Electric. Um, and I could go into all the details of how it's different, but it's fundamentally different. And one example of that is we have a kind of a passive gravity system in terms of using getting the water into the pools. So unlike the one in Japan where they had to pump the water when they lost their electricity, they didn't have the ability to put water in the pools and expose uh, the uh, rods. Mm-hmm. I think the important point here is is that the pl- the new generation of plants, I believe, will be safer, even safer than the existing plants because of the design. I was in China, and one of the reasons, among many reasons I was in China, is I talked to the head of the organization that runs all the nuclear and is responsible for building the new nuclear. They're in the process of building an AP-1000 now. I believe they will have built two of them before we start building ours. And so I'm spending time with them. Our team is monitoring what they're doing because I believe the Chinese will find a way to do it faster and more affordable. And they are developing the intellectual property of scaling these technologies and we will benefit in the U.S. from this intellectual property of scaling. And on, on cost, some people say that one of the reasons we haven't built a new reactor since Three Mile Island is, is partly environmental and concerns about health, but it's also that Wall Street won't fund nuclear power plants because they're, as we're seeing, they're risky and, and they're hugely capital intensive. So how is the Japan situation going to ca- change the capital approach to funding nuclear? Well, first of all, I think companies our size, I mean, in the last several years, we've raised over $10 billion. And we've raised it at an average rate of about 5% with a term of 10, 12, or 13 years. So we've had great access to the capital market in the middle of this meltdown in in financial Mm -hmm. and capital markets around the world. So we have a very strong balance sheet. This acquisition will give us an even stronger and bigger balance sheet. So, yes, we will be able to build it. Yes, we'll have to maintain a higher credit quality to satisfy the rating agencies because they've effectively told us if you're going to build a nuclear plant and your credit rating is, you know, A, we want it to be a double A mm-hmm. or effectively. Or if you're an A and you're building a plant, they're going to downgrade you to a triple B plus or A minus. So the bottom line is you have to have a higher credit rating, stronger balance sheet in order to build a nuclear plant. The other answer and the one that I prefer is that I believe that nuclear plants in the future will be built on a regional basis where you'll have three to five owners. So you're sharing the risk from an investor perspective. But from a customer's perspective, you're spreading the cost over a much larger customer base, so the incremental cost will be much less than if one company built it and spread it over its customer base. So regional nuclear, I believe, is an answer in part to the cost Mm -hmm. and to the risk and to the cost to consumers. Another cost consideration is is uh, small-scale sort of prefabricated or manufactured 
nuclear plants, and there's some advocates out there for that. Uh, so you think that that will come into the market, small-scale nuclear that can be made at lower cost? A lot of the plants we have now are one-off, very expensive, designed to specific. I think two things. One, the big plants, like the AP-1000, um, are Areva's new design. They'll be continuously built. They will be standardized with modest improvements as they move to second, third generations mm-hmm. of the build-out. But the most exciting thing that will change the future are the small modular reactors. There are five companies in the country. B&W is kind of one of the leading ones in the U.S., but the Chinese are developing, and I had an opportunity to go to Tsinghua University in Beijing. And while I was there last week, I met with the chairman of Wanong, which has a company called Chenergy, uh, <laughs> Chinese Energy. Yeah, sure. <laughs> and, the, and the bottom line is, is they own this technology that's evolving. It's a pebble bed type project. And at the end of the day, it may be one of the answers. So if you look out to 2030, I believe that they'll be cost competitive with the larger nuclear units. I was watching CNN and looking at the uh, situation in Japan, and I noticed that there was suddenly uh, the clean coal ads came back that we saw quite a bit uh, a year ago, and which raises the question of whether other fuel uh, companies look at, at nuclear's rainy day as an opportunity to gain some market share. <laughs> we're the third largest producer of electricity from nuclear, but we're also the third largest from coal. So I'm bipolar. Okay. Um, <laughs> In some senses of the word. Um, maybe all senses. But my, my important point here is this. Look at coal. Um, look at the emissions from coal. I mean, we're the third largest emitter of CO2 in the United States because of our coal fleet. Mm-hmm. And, and look at the emissions that we have had to deal with in terms of SOX, NOX, and mercury, fine particulate. Look at mountaintop mining. Look at all the implications of producing electricity from coal. Also, look at the safety record. The mining accidents in West Virginia and Utah and Chile are examples of the risk associated with the mining of coal. A lot more people die mining coal than in nuclear plants or mining uranium. That would be my point. And, mm-hmm. and so from a safety standpoint, nuclear is, is better. Um, now, we might find technologies like carbon capture and sequestration. We're working with the Chinese on a process where you take algae out of the flue gas. I mean, you, you capture the carbon out of the flue gas, you accelerate the growth of algae, and you turn it into a biofuel. Uh, that might be one answer. Uh, there are a number of people looking at ways to try to capture the carbon from coal plants as well as gas plants. A lot of people tell you that gas plants are clean. Well, they have 50% of the carbon footprint of coal. And some people say, but shell gas, there's an abundance of it, and it's clean. But if the analysis is showing that you get maybe 60% of the carbon from coal, but, because I mean, primarily because you're releasing methane when you're doing the underground fracking process, and it raises significant environmental issues associated with the use of water right. and chemicals together and what the containment issues are, I mean, contamination issues with respect to that water. Nasty, nasty business. I saw the film Gasland where they sort of light people's uh, faucets on but, fire. And some of that might have been from methane, I've been told. And some of that, I think, though, is there's real serious concerns about fracking. And, and so what, what you, I hear you saying is you need to look at the life cycle cost, not just the burning side of the fuel. That's, that's, a, that's exactly what I'm saying. Because I think life cycle cost gives you a clear point of comparison. But there's another important point to be made here. Every way we generate electricity has risk. It has consequences. They vary. There's uncertainty with respect to what technology, what developments are going to occur in the future to make them more viable and less risky. You, so that's why we are the third largest in nuclear. That's why we built 1,000 megawatts of wind in the last three years. We're investing in solar on the rooftop in North Carolina. That's why we are building coal plants, gas plants. Um, so, and, and 
we are building everything, significantly investing in energy efficiency. The important point I'm making here is that with the uncertainty in the world and with respect to the technological developments that could occur, it's really important to have a portfolio from a investor's perspective and from our customer's perspective. Developing a portfolio is a smarter way to move forward than make a bet on any single fuel. Jim Rogers is chairman and CEO of Duke Energy. We're discussing America's energy future here at Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton. I'd like to stay on coal for a minute and then get to some of the re- uh, renewables. Uh, I look at the, you're in the midst of a large merger, and after that merger with Progress Energy, your portfolio will be significantly different. You will have coal, I believe, will go from 48% down to 42% of the combined company, uh, and gas goes up from 27 to 35. So you're going to have a different carbon profile, emission profile. Are you? Is that part of your decision in the merger to go toward gas and away from coal? Well, as you know, I believe that climate change is an issue for a long time. And in fact, in 2004, we dedicated our whole annual report before it was fashionable to how can we find common ground? We called it global warming then. We've since changed the name. But how can we find climate, uh, common ground on climate change? And if you look at the mergers I've done, and this is the third, I started in Indiana with a company where 96% of the electricity came from coal. Then we merged with a company in Ohio where we reduced our usage. Then we merged with Duke because they're really the third largest. And now we do this merger, and I, and if you think about it, I've, from an investor standpoint, I've really reduced our exposure to carbon because we, we reduced, as a total corporation, our reliance on coal. And we have a better mix of nuclear, coal, gas, renewables. Now, uh, some people... Uh, a lot of coal plants have been stopped around the country right. because of capital reasons, some because of environmental opposition. Uh, and as you've, as you've acknowledged, there is climate risk for investors. Uh, do you think that you're fully acknowledging or, or disclosing the coal risk of, of potentially future legislation, a price on carbon, that, that coal is really maybe a little more risky than even you're acknowledging or that, or that some utilities are, are uh, acknowledging? Let me give you two points. One is a macro point and one is a company-specific. The macro point is this. We have 300,000 megawatts of coal in the United States. 100,000 megawatts of it is over 40 years old and has never been retrofitted for sulfur dioxide, nitrogen oxide, or mercury. In my judgment, those plants should be shut down and will be shut down over the next decade. And so that's going to give us an opportunity to replace those plants Mm-hmm. and really reduce the carbon footprint from coal in the United States. At the same time, and this is kind of on a micro perspective, we're building two coal plants, the only company in the country that is, but they are advanced technologies. In Indiana, we're building a coal gasification plant, which will be the cleanest coal plant in the world in terms of major pollutants as well as the carbon intensity uh, of the electricity. We're building a supercritical plant in North Carolina, which also is um, much more efficient, reduces our emissions footprint of all the pollutants, including CO2. But here's the most important point in the punchline. We're building these plants, but we're going to, and they total roughly 1,400 megawatts, and we're going to end up shutting down about 2,000 megawatts of these old 40, 50, 60-year-old plants who have never been retrofitted for SOX, NOx, and mercury. And, and so at the end of the day, we've started down the road of modernizing our plants in anticipation of regulations that will generally force us to close the plants. Starting early, I started my career as a consumer advocate fighting rate increases in utility companies, so I have a little bit of that perspective. Interesting. <laughs> I'm still protecting the consumers, uh, maybe better than I did then. But, but by starting early on this modernization, we're able to smooth the cost impact out on consumers. 
as we go forward. And it's very critical for us to have very, I mean, job one for me is providing affordable, reliable, clean electricity 24-7. I don't have the luxury of just looking through the, the clean lens or the reliability lens or just the affordable lens. I have to balance. And so what we're really trying to do is smooth out the cost impact so it may, where our product continues to be affordable. Today, we're about 30% lower than the national average, and I want to continue to maintain that delta because that allows us to attract significant investment and jobs to our states. And some people would say the reason that, you, that Duke and other southern com- utilities are cheaper than the national average is that the full cost of coal, the externalities, the, the carbon, is not built into the price. That, that you get to dump it for free in the atmosphere. What would you say about that? Well, <laughs> let me take North Carolina and South Carolina. Um, 50% of our electricity comes from nuclear. So, and 50% comes from coal and hydro. Um, and we're the second largest operator of private hydro in the United States. So when you look at the carbon intensity of each kilowatt hour, I'd say we're one of the lowest in the country. And by virtue of having built those nuclear plants back in the 60s and 70s. And the hydro, which is all right. And the hydro. I mean, Mm -hmm. so when you look at that mix in the Carolinas, I would put us up against any other part of the country in terms of the carbon footprint per kilowatt hour. Now, it's a different story in the Midwest, that part of our business, because that's predominantly where coal is produced. And we built most of those plants either on the Ohio River, so we have the advantage of the barge trade, or mine mouth in Indiana. And those are very low-cost plants. But, But the specific answer to your question is, yes, there is a cost. And as I build new plants, I factor in the cost of carbon, even though we don't have regulations yet, I look in the distance, and I know we'll have regulations of carbon in the country sometime in the future. There will be a price on carbon. What, what price level do you uh, model? I model anywhere between 50 and $50, 15 and $50. Per ton, per metric ton of carbon emitted. Okay. Right. So you think that there'll be a price on carbon and you'd rather get ahead of it rather than get caught short later when it comes down, if and when it comes down. Let me make an important point. In Washington, the political leadership there is focused on two, four, six. Years, yeah. Years. Uh, Two years for congressmen, four years for the president, six years for senators. I have to be focused on 40 years, 50 years, and 60 years. And as a consequence of that, I have to look beyond the short term. And even if I find an environment, as I do today in this Congress, that they're not going to pass any legislation, I think the world changes. I looked at the world in 2010 uh, versus 2008 and look at the changes that occurred then. I don't know what's going to change in 2012. So I have to make judgments, and I have to hopefully help mold and shape energy and environmental policy, but I have to make judgments based on what I think the world will be in the next 10, 20, 30 years. You mentioned uh, regulation, and there's a couple examples where other utility companies have weighed in on policy uh, questions I'd like to discuss here. I should mention our guest here is Duke Energy CEO and Chairman Jim Rogers at Climate One today. Uh, and recently, a number of electric utilities, American Electric Power, Next Era, Southern Company, Southern Companies with Significant Coal, Dominion, uh, the CEOs came out and said that they think the EPA should have the authority to regulate greenhouse gases because it gives them certainty about the future that you're talking about. You, did, you weren't part of that. Did you consider saying, uh, joining your peers there uh, in sort of supporting EPA authority to regulate greenhouse gases? I think there's been a number of positions taken. A number of companies have really supported those in Congress that want to delay it for two years. Senator Rockefeller right, has from a West bill. Virginia has yeah. a bill on that. There is also uh, basically a bill in the House to gut the authority of EPA to regulate carbon. Um, My judgment is 
the Lisa um, the uh, Murkowski, senator from Alaska. No, no, I'm really thinking about Lisa Jackson, who okay. is a head EPA. of EPA. Um, she basically has recognized that it's cheaper that they don't really have the tools to to regulate EPA. EPA recognizes they don't have the tools, and and that it had been better for Congress to roll up their sleeves and address the issue. But I haven't publicly come out with respect to that. But the Supreme Court acted, gave them the responsibilities. They know what they're going to do will not be the cheap alternative for America. But nonetheless, I don't oppose them moving forward because my hope is, rather than engendering legislation to take the power away from them, it will engender legislation that really addresses carbon in a way that's fair to all parts of our country. And, does, and, and allows us to do it in the most affordable way possible. And unfortunately, Congress has basically taken a powder on this issue, and I think it's a critical issue to the future of our country and to our planet. So you would prefer that Congress would pass legislation addressing greenhouse gases, putting a price on carbon. They haven't. And it's not. Do you support the EPA? Or are you neutral on the EPA going ahead because Congress hasn't acted? I'm supportive of them going forward, but I'm rec- but I'm being clear because I have to be honest with my customers that they're going to implement rules. They're going to raise our prices. They know it's not the cheapest way to address the issues. Nonetheless, and they know it's not the cheapest way to do it, and I just think it's, it's uh, in an economy where we're trying to get our mojo back to put additional cost on consumers is just unfortunate and unnecessary, and it's really a failure of Congress because at the end of the day, the EPA is going to act, and what they're going to do, it's going to translate into higher prices, But my hope, and the reason I don't oppose them doing it, is as they act, and you see their rules, very limited because the Clean Air Act wasn't written to do this, it's going to, it will become obvious that Congress has to act, and maybe it will force Congress to do its job. A little bit of, I want to go back just briefly here, and then we'll get to audience questions in a few minutes, though, but... Uh, you were very involved in something called the U.S. Climate Action Partnership, which really changed the politics of energy in America. It got together big environmental groups with big energy producers, and it looked like they were going to define the center and they were going to get things with GE and General Motors as well as uh, NRDC and Environmental Defense. They were going to sort of move something through Congress, uh, and it all fell apart. Why? You were a inside, key inside player during that chapter <laughs> of the energy uh, debate. How did that all fall up? Briefly, just how did that all fall apart? One, our coalition didn't fall apart. What's remarkable, and I was a founding member, uh, and, I mean, think about it. I was a founding member, and I'm the third largest emitter of CO2 in the country. And so I think the idea of NGOs and corporations working together to shape policy was critical. The reason that the House was able to pass the Waxman-Markey bill is because they took the blueprint that we did, and that became a roadmap for them in, in order to pass the legislation. That was in the House. But when we got to the Senate, the politics was completely different in the Senate. And as a consequence, all the work that we did, we couldn't, we didn't have the capability to build a consensus around a way forward in the Senate. But here, if anything comes out of this failed effort, is in a lesson that I have, I believe that NGOs, corporations, foundations working together will do more to shape the future and do it faster than the U.S. government. And I believe if we could come together with good ideas and present it to the government with these different interests, come together, I think we'll be in a better position to shape policy in the future. So, yes, we failed, 
in the last session of Congress because we couldn't get it across the goal line in the Senate. But I think we succeeded in, in putting together a model that hadn't been put together before of corporations and NGOs finding a way forward and providing Congress a roadmap. Some in, some environmental groups thought after a time that maybe they were getting the short end of the deal with the big corporations, and some corporations left. I think ConocoPhillips left, and some of the oil companies left. But the question I want to ask, though, is Eric Pooley, who wrote a book called The Climate War, I believe it was, your feature prominent in there, basically says that it was a failure of presidential leadership, that if President Obama wanted a deal and rolled up his sleeves, he could have got it through the Senate. Do you agree? <laughs> now you've gone from I put you in a tougher spot because uh, you're about to uh, co-chair the <laughs> Democratic National Convention in his in re-election Charlotte. bid. Yeah, so. <laughs> you know, you've gone from preaching to meddling um, yeah. <laughs> in terms of topics. Um, let me address it in this way. A major effort was put into the health care bill. And in a, any single session of Congress, it's rare that a, two major pieces of legislation are passed in one session of Congress. So once the decision was made to get health care bill passed first, yeah. first, yeah. it reduced the probability significantly that there would be a second major piece of legislation. So that was a decision that was made by Congress or by the White House or by both, but nonetheless, they made that choice. And so by definition, looking at history, they reduced the probability that a second piece of major legislation will get done. Actually, it was remarkable that we had it, had the ability to get it out of the House. Mm-hmm. And we made progress in the Senate. So the short answer to your question is, is that President Obama and Congress made a decision to go first on health care, later on climate, and they recognized that the hill would be higher on climate because of this history of doing one major piece of legislation every congressional session. They thought they had the capability to do it. We thought we had the capability to get it done. If I had to do it all over again and I was king of the world, I would have urged the president, go first on climate and come later on health care. That would have been my sequencing, but that's way above my pay grade. Jim Rogers is chairman and CEO of Duke Energy. We're discussing energy at Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton. Um, Pipeline safety has been very much in the news lately. In fact, uh, Secretary of Transportation Ray LaHood yesterday called for higher civil penalties going up to $250,000 a day or $2.5 million for a series of occurrences. There have been explosions here in California, Michigan, Pennsylvania. Do you support the higher level of civil penalties, and what do you think we should do to make the pipelines safer? I I come. My background is, is before I was in the power sector, I used to run one of the largest gas pipeline networks in the country. So I have some familiarity with this issue. I do not think, with respect to the um, interstate transmission lines, those are really very safe. And, and, and you don't see any explosions with respect to those. I think there was one maybe a decade or so ago, but they are really fairly safe. The issue really is, and I guess happened to PG&E, is that they were most of the distribution infrastructure in cities is very, very old. 100 years in some cases. And hadn't been replaced. And so the issue is, should these companies that own gas distribution, and by the way, we do. We have over 500,000 customers in Ohio and Kentucky with gas distribution. We started about eight to ten years ago basically replacing our, our, we, our, our underground system and replacing our mains to, to reduce the probability that we would have any incident. 
So I think one of the great challenges for those that run gas distribution is to make the right investments to make sure they're replacing their um, system in a timely way. So does that mean more regulation? Because companies are not incented to invest in that stuff. It doesn't get any shareholder return. I mean, it's kind of a... Well, it does, actually. And, And actually, when we did it in Ohio, our main place, I mean, our main replacement program was approved by the state commission. They allowed us to track the cost. They saw an incentive in, in reduce, in increasing safety, increasing reliability, and the state commission allowed us to recover it on a regular basis. So that was an example of a state commission recognizing um, that there was the need to replace the gas distribution network. And the consumer should pay for it. And, and the consumer will pay for it because these systems were fully depreciated. Um, and so we make money off of investment and upgrading and replacing, and we did it. In California, I don't know all the facts in California, but I don't think there was any encouragement by the state regulators to replace it or any mechanisms put in place to incent the company to do the replacement. So I, I really can't comment on the specifics here, but to your original question, I think having a penalty will force gas distribution companies to take a hard look at their infrastructure, go to their state commissions, and get permission to replace their existing pipe systems. So you support the increased penalties that Secretary LaHood mentioned? I do. Uh, we're going to go to audience questions. We're going to put a mic out here and invite you, if you're on this side of the room, to come around to that other door. And my colleague Devin there will um, uh, organize the queue. We're discussing America's energy future with Jim Rogers, CEO of Duke Energy. Let's talk about electric cars of great interest to a lot of people here in California. It affects utilities. Uh, what's your view on electric cars? Uh, what do you think the adoption rates will be? And are utilities ready to, to uh, handle them? We're very focused on preparing our infrastructure so that we're ready. I have a team that what they do is they're working with different manufacturers and really developing charging stations. We're working with a Japanese company called Atochi um, that basically where they have batteries in cars and when they're no longer useful in the car, it becomes we will use those batteries afterwards because they still have will have a life. Mm-hmm. We call them standby batteries. And I was just at BYD in China, which is developing the e-bus, the e-car. I think they accelerate the production and acceptance of it in China faster because there people don't have cars at all, and they're delighted to get an e-car. They want to go straight to electric and bypass internal combustion. Absolutely, because they're making them in a very affordable way. The other thing that they're doing, what we're doing, is really, you know, as as you mentioned, I'm co-chair of the host committee for the convention, and we're doing negotiations with a major rental company where we can have 300 to 500 electric vehicles there for the delegates to use, with charging stations at remote locations in the city. So we're going to use that, the convention, to kind of showcase electric vehicles and the use of it. In Indiana, what we're doing is we're working there where they have the Indy 500. And actually, the Indy 500 got started a zillion years ago to demonstrate to people that cars were better than horse and buggy (laughs) in terms of racing around a track. But one of the things that we're working there with the people is the notion that we can have an electric car race uh, in addition to the Indy 500. And when Indianapolis sponsors, I think in 2011, um, the Super Bowl, I guess it would be in 12, yeah. 2012, assuming there's no strike. Uh, I've been out of the country. Maybe they solved that. But, so, yeah. but they are really focused on having a lot of electric cars available to be used as part of the Super Bowl experience. Interesting. So, again, things are really going on to generate support 
both infrastructure support as well as is it to demonstrate to consumers, and that's what you have to do is convince consumers electric cars are a good buy. And they're macho and cool like Indy. Um, <laughs> let's have our first audience question, please. Hi. I don't think – is my – yeah, it is on. Um, I'm Lisa Weinzimmer with Platts, and I'm curious about what you said about your thinking on regional nuclear efforts in the future. Is this something that any company has done, or what is what is making you think this is uh, – could be a trend? Well, as you know, in the South – we have probably built more, we have very strong support from our regulatory commissions to build nuclear. Um, and because we're looking at building a number of nuclear plants there, we have proposed, actually several years ago, the idea of having regional ownership because of the sharing the risk from an investor perspective as well as having a more incremental cost increase for over a much larger customer base. We just think that is the best way forward rather than have one company build and share the cost over its customer base. There, do other companies in the area agree with Duke? Who's good? Yeah, anyone on board with you? <laughs> uh, yes. In, in fact, we had... Um, Jacksonville Electric, which is in North Florida, has basically agreed to buy an option in the new plant that we're planning planning to build in the future. So we're we're starting to get people that want to join with us in the building of these plants. Next question, please. Welcome. Good morning, Mr. Rogers. Good morning. I'm Dave Masson with Citizens Climate Lobby. As you explained, utilities have a long investment time horizon, and presumably you would like as much predictability as possible about your costs going forward. I understand that cap and trade can actually introduce more volatility to fuel prices on top of the way that they already fluctuate. As a utility executive, would you prefer a carbon tax or carbon fee approach where it might rise predictably? That's a very good question, and I've spent an incredible amount of time thinking about it. The carbon tax approach really penalizes the people in the states that are heavily dependent on coal. Effectively, it's a wealth transfer from the Midwest, the way it's contemplated, and the center of our country to California and to the Northeast. So I really oppose any kind of tax because of the disproportionate impact it has. The important point here is, is that the people in the Midwest and those parts that built coal and nuclear plants were carrying out national energy policy in the 1970s. As I remember, we said it was illegal to burn natural gas to generate electricity. We passed that law in 1978, repealed in 85. And the only two things you could build was coal and nuclear. Then we had Three Mile Island, and the only thing you could build was coal. So at the end of the day, that's what we did. So I say no to carbon tax. Cap and trade, I like it for another reason. You put a cap on emissions, so the emissions go down over time, and you put a price on carbon, and that volatility in price in my judgment, will is manageable because what it really allows you to do is to do compliance in the cheapest way possible. One quick example. George Walker Bush actually and Bill Riley presented the idea to Congress in 1989. They adopted it. And cap and trade has been incredibly effective with SO2 and NOx. Our company alone has spent $5 billion, and we staggered the investment. It was cheaper to buy credits earlier, and then we were in the third generation of scrubbers, and we were able to build, build them cheaper and more efficiently. So when you look at the SO2 experience, cap and trade was a win for America because we achieved our environmental goals 
We used the markets to do it, and we did it in a low-cost way. Your uh, mic. Let me tell you about your mic thing. It's, it's sticking out a little bit. Just the, the cord there. Thank you. A um, little bit of housekeeping. Uh, Jim Rogers is chairman and CEO of Duke Energy, and we're just talking at Climate One. Next audience question, please. Hi, um, I'm Erica Steffen. Um, we've seen resolutions in the House not just to restrain uh, EPA authority, but challenging the science, calling for investigations of scientists who are simply going about their normal work. If you look at polling, somewhere between 30 to 40 percent of the public is either actively hostile to climate science or very confused about the issue. And yet at some point you're going to have to justify presumably rate increases to your customers based upon climate science. So I'm wondering what you're doing to educate your customers and the public in general about the science. I actually think that is kind of an important assignment that we have. I'm a CEO. I've come to believe that it means chief educational officer. I really have a responsibility to the public to really educate them, and we have uh, in terms and, and for a while taken the position to really help them understand. But while there might be 30%, there are 26% of the people that don't believe a man landed on the moon. And Neil Armstrong was on my board for over a decade, and I'm pretty sure it's true. And uh, I think informing the public is going to be difficult. Informing opinion leaders is turning out to be difficult. Not all opinion leaders, but I think we have to redouble our efforts. And that's what I come, as I come out of this failure in the last session of Congress, we just have to do a better job of educating the public, better job of educating policy leaders with respect to the climate science. Thank you. But you, you fundamentally believe, you have any doubts about the science yourself? I'm sure that man-made admission, that Earth is warming, I am sure man-made emissions is contributing to it. I'm not so clear what the implications will be or the timing will be. I think we need more research on that. But the fact that it's happening is real. And, and so I have no reservation about it other than the timing and what the impact will be, and that's to be determined. Next audience question, please. Uh, Good morning, Mr. Rogers. I'm Kermit Kubitz, and I have a question about the transmission system. We have uh, an independent system operator here in California, and if you're moving into the Midwest, there's a Midwest ISO and a New York ISO. Do you see anything like that in the southeast because they haven't had uh, an independent system operator moving forward in in that area. Well, actually, our combination with Progress will allow us to jointly dispatch our system, and at the end of the day, create savings of about 700 million over a five-year period for our customers. I believe that the regulators in the South have a different view, and regulators in another part of the country, with respect to the ISOs and how they work. We were a founding member as Synergy of MISO. But today, we're raising fundamental questions, and many of the members of MISO are, because they're incurring significant costs to connect renewables to the system in the Minnesota area, and yet those costs, our customers will pick up in Indiana and in Michigan, and yet they're getting none of the benefits of those incremental investments in transmission. So there are a lot of tough issues to get resolved with these, but I don't see for the foreseeable future that the South will move in that direction. Jim Rogers is chairman and CEO of Duke Energy, and this is Climate One of the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton. Next question, please. Hi, I'm Andrew Behar, the CEO of As You Sow. Um, we filed a shareholder resolution with Duke this year asking for a report on the financial risk associated with coal compared with alternatives. And we met with some of your folks, and they decided that they didn't want to write this report, and so we'll see you at the annual meeting in, in Charlotte in a few weeks. Um, and I'm wondering why is that? Some of the things that you said today indicate that coal does have all these inherent risks, the price of coal, the extraction costs, the, all of the, uh, the uh, EPA um, issues that are coming up that are going to cause more scrubbers to be needed and, and additional costs. Um, there's also been a lot of industry analysts, analysts who've, uh, Brattle, Bernstein, 
uh, and, and different groups that have put out reports about this. Uh, why wouldn't you want to let your investors know about basically your plans to move off of coal and into a cleaner uh, energy sourcing? Well, our sustainability report is rather complete, and it may not include every suggestion that you're making, but I will say this. Even as the third largest emitter in the country, we're on the Dow Jones Sustainability Index, and last year we named to the world's Dow Jones Sustainability Index is one of the most sustainable uh, companies of one of the best sustainable sustainability practices in the world. But specifically to your point, I'm not, and we need to talk afterwards, but I think we have very clear disclosures with respect to our admissions. We were one of the first companies in the country to do it. Now, what is difficult, if you're saying, tell me when you're going to retire you know, the Gallagher plan, or when are you going to retire the Gibson plan or this plan? We really can't predict when we're going to retire them because of the uncertainty in the law, because of the, we have to get approval from the regulators as to whether we retire them. We did get approval to retire almost 2,000 megawatts of generation that's old and needs to be retired in all old coal plants. But it's very difficult for us to predict or to have a clear plan. So we're probably the only company. I'm trying to think if there's another company in the United States that's retiring more coal plants than we're retiring. I can't think of one. But you recognize that disclosure of coal risk, the SEC is doing some things, and some investors or large institutional shareholders are calling for more uh, coal and carbon disclosure in general. No, I mean, it's, it's interesting, and, and, I'm, and, and it's unfortunate that he believes that we really haven't disclosed as much as we can. We feel like we've disclosed everything. So we have a shareholder proposal on that because we can't really predict what the regulators, what the regulations will be. And yet I have also a shareholder proposal from the far right who just put a uh, website up, uh, firejimrogers.com, I think, mainly because I'm a, I'm a left-leaning liberal who supports cap-and-trade, and they want to see all the money that I've spent on lobbying to pass cap-and-trade legislation in Congress because they think, that I shouldn't be wasting my money because there's the climate science doesn't support it and that I'm wasting corporate assets to get passage and clarity with respect to climate change. So I'm in an interesting place of some saying I'm not doing enough and others saying that I'm almost a communist. <laughs> the way they described it, it was fairly interesting. Um, with respect to my belief in climate change. Jim Rogers is chairman and CEO of Duke Energy. Next question, please. Uh, Mr. Rogers, uh, good yes. afternoon. I'm Michael Canellis from Green Tech Media. And I'd like to get back to your role as chief education officer. And I'm wondering, what's really driving the very active opposition to uh, cap-and-trade and climate change science? I mean, it's not, it's not blasé indifference, and people don't know and haven't heard the issue. It's actually active, somewhat aggressive opposition fueled by their own research. It has been difficult. It's actually, and I want to say this in a very careful way, it's a great irony in my mind that the Republicans are the ones that proposed cap-and-trade, got a Democratic Congress to pass it in 1990, and they heralded it as one of the greatest achievements because we've moved from command and control to achieve environmental goals, to using market forces to achieve um, environmental goals. And so for this generation of Republicans to demonize it, I think goes more to the fact that they don't believe the science. And as a consequence, they demonize cap and trade rather than to admit they don't believe the science. Now, there's some that say the science, they don't believe it. But others don't feel that. I mean, I think they use cap and trade as a way to disguise their belief about the science. 
there's a more cynical view, which is it's just delayed. It might, science aside, that it's just delay, delay, delay to prolong the status quo and those who are benefiting and profiting from the status quo. But at the end of the day, for the companies that are providing electricity that drives our society today, we want clarity with respect to what the regulations are going to be because we have a mandate to, to retire and replace every plant by 2050. I've got 40 years to get it done. I have a blank sheet of paper. I want to know what the rules are. I want to know what the roadmap is, and I'll build it. But by delaying it, does it help me do it in a way to achieve my goal of providing affordable electricity as well as reliable and clean electricity? There's another irony that by Congress not doing it, you earlier said that EPA may do it and it will cost everybody more. Everybody more. Next question, please. Thanks. Good morning. Um, I was morning. hoping you could comment a little bit more on the uh, nuclear industry's efforts to address disposal of spent nuclear fuel. And uh, specifically, if you could discuss um, <coughs> what kinds of process or technology innovations are going on at Duke and industry-wide. Thanks. <coughs> yes, I'd be, uh, that's a good question. Spent fuel is an issue that when we started down the road of building nuclear plant, the government made a commitment that they would find a depository, a repository for all nuclear uh, spent fuel. We collected $30 billion from our customers so the government could do that. They spent $8 billion of the $30 billion to create Yucca Mountain. And then all of a sudden, and and they were supposed to do all that by 1998, and Yucca Mountain's off the table, and they still have our money, and they haven't lived up to their obligation. So I believe private companies like ours need to step up and address this issue I personally believe in recycling. The French have done it in a very effective way. I think that's something that we ought to do in this country. I believe that maybe we have to move to more of a regional approach. I think this accident in Japan, in my judgment, will accelerate the movement of spent fuel rods from the pools into the dry cask. And so I think that will be a consequence of what's going to happen. Do we have any no more audience questions? Last question will be, you just returned from China, uh, and some people believe that China is really moving out ahead and, and will sort of own clean energy in the 21st century. It's, I believe it's fairly unusual for a U.S. regulated or unregulated utility to be so active in China as you are. I know we could talk a whole hour about China, but quickly, is China really going to widening the gap and moving ahead in the United States in clean energy? They're not only moving ahead, but they're moving ahead on China time. And China scale. And China scale. Don't underestimate their economic imperative. In the world, there's 1.6 billion people that have no access to electricity. There's a link between prosperity and access to electricity. Many of the people in China do not have access to electricity. So they feel like they need to do it. But what they also put a stake in the ground that, I mean, think about it. They're the largest producer of solar panels today, largest producer of wind turbines. They're building 24 nuclear plants. They are, they are experimenting with small modular um, reactors and I think have a very good technology. So they are really walking the talk. We do a lot of chattering in this country. We're a lot like our ancestors from Europe, the chattering class, who talk a lot about it. We need to be the way our country has always been, the can-do class. We have more in common with the Chinese in terms of making things happen because we had a history of making things happen in this country. They're in the phase of really making things happen while we sit here and debate it. So, yes, they're going to lead the way. And the other point I'd quickly make is the way they do research is fundamentally different than the way we do in this country. They create centers of excellence. What they also do is if Tsinghua University, they have commercial enterprises there, and the, the institution is focused on their issues. So we need to change the way we 
do R&D in this country. We need to create centers of excellence around solar and wind rather than spreading our money to every university across the country with, you know, hundreds and thousands of science projects. We need to focus the sliver of money we get from the federal government in a more effective way. Can we catch up? I think that's a jump ball as to whether we can. And I think we ought to try. But we have got a lot of work to do. We have to change the way we do R&D in this country. We're going to have to change the amount of money that we put into R&D out of the federal government. And we're really going to have to change how we approach this issue if we're going to catch up. And I think that they, and why I'm there is because I'm making a bet, I'm hedging my bet, I guess, that they will develop wind and solar and nuclear and be able to build it cheaper than we can. And at the end of the day, my job is affordable, reliable, clean, and if I have to help the Chinese help me build my nuclear, or if I do solar on the rooftop, as I've done in North Carolina, Yingli, the Chinese company, won the bid. Mm-hmm. And so the point is, I, I, if I'm going to make it clean, I need to make it affordable. And if they give me the option of making it affordable, I'm taking it. We have to end it there. Our thanks to Jim Rogers, Chairman and CEO of Duke Energy. I'm Greg Dalton. Thank you all for listening and to come to Climate One today. Thank you. Thank you.